Atolia turned, and Edith thought that behind her mask the queen might be afraid, and so she finished lightly. You have to believe him, because he's going to have your entire palace up in arms, and your court in chaos, and every member of it from the barons to the boot cleaners coming to you for his blood, and you are going to have to deal with it. Atolia smiled. You make him sound like more trouble than he is worth. No, said Edith thoughtfully. Never more than he's worth. If you can't handle me at my upending the equilibrium of your entire court, you don't deserve me at my destroying all your enemies in 98 days. She really got a good return on investment there. <laughs> hey everybody, I'm Noelle. And I'm Caitlin. And this is the Atolian Archives, your Queen's Thief reread podcast to get you through the wait for Return of the Thief. It's August 25th, 2019, and Return of the Thief will be published exactly a year from today. And it feels so good to have a countdown again! Yes! In all of our early episodes, we were like, oh, 75 days, 60 days, only a few months. And now we sound like fools. Not to be. But we're back. We're back on that horse of counting down. 365. Just another thing to date the episodes. Yeah, so if you're listening (laughs) from the future, you can laugh at us. So we are in the home stretch of our read of the Queen of Atolia. Today's episode, we discuss chapter 20, which is mostly dancing with some light politics. Or is it the other way around? This chapter starts off with the two queens and a bunch of different members of their households meeting. And one of the first people who's mentioned is the Seneschal of Ephrata. And um, that is how you pronounce it, Seneschal. And if you didn't know... A seneschal is the steward or major domo of a medieval great house. So it's uh, a head servant who is attached to the house. And we get some good interaction between Atolia and a bunch of different people in this chapter. Like we see in this meeting with, between like all the random people, uh, the minister of war contradicts Atolia saying that um, Edith doesn't ride unescorted to your capital. And everyone in her household is like looking on in awe at someone saying no to her. Like, what are you doing? No one's ever done that before. And it's it's an assertion of, uh, excuse me, we are in charge here. <laughs> Even though they have this newfound alliance, it's very tenuous. She's sort of being thrust into a whole bunch of social situations that she's not used to. <laughs> and we get a little more about her and her attendance in this chapter, too. Um, once she gets back to the capital, um, it goes into how, like, she's in such a bad mood over this whole marriage and engagement and whatever, and, um... And honestly, calling back to that line about how when she's angry, she sits, and when she's sad, she sits, and if she were ever happy, she would just sit. She's not just sitting Yeah, She's huffing and puffing and pacing about and slamming doors. She's very animated. Yeah. So in the midst of all this... To her surprise, her attendants drew closer to support her. She looked for fear in their servility or hate in their attention, but saw none. Their affection and their care seemed genuine. So, that's interesting because throughout the whole rest of this book, when we get Atolia's perspective on herself and her relationship with others, she's, you know, she presents herself as, like, she has no allies, she has no trust, she has no friends, she can't rely on anyone, but now Mm -hmm. we see, now that they're loyalty to her is like tested are they going to support her through this this 
trouble, she's finding that's not the case. And so you get the sense that Atolia's absolute isolation is sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. She expects that no one will be loyal to her and that no one will offer her their friendship without expectations. And so uh, that's the world that she's stuck in, Mm -hmm. even though if she opens up a little bit, she might be able to find that there are already many people in her life who are are willing to be there for her. Mm -hmm. She dismisses one of her attendants in this chapter, Chloe, one of the youngest, um, for dropping a perfume spoon onto Watani and Fora, and that was just the straw that broke the camel's back, just something that just set the queen off. The breaking of the amphora. Yeah. Which calls back, obviously, to the metaphor of hurting Eugenides brought the queen's mind to when she threw her slipper in a rage when she was little and broken in for a perfume. And how once it was broken on impulse, it could never be repaired. Mm-hmm. And so she dismisses Chloe, but then Chloe is back in the King of Atolia. That's right. Which is also kind of a nice detail that we can imply, I guess, growth from, like, saying, <laughs> you know, she can move on from past, like treatment of other people, I guess. And sometimes things can be mended. Yeah. Nahusaresh escapes. <laughs> and Atalia does not kill anybody over it. True. Talaeus is very worried that she is going to be pissed. <laughs> but um, she just kind of sighs and uh, says, well, oh well, I'll have to do without a ransom. And they escape because the guards were not watching Kamet. Mm-hmm. Which we were saying earlier is probably partially because like they didn't consider a slave to be a threat but also maybe partially because uh they might not assume that Kamet as a slave who doesn't have a choice about Nuhuzrush wouldn't want to help Nuhuzrush and wouldn't want to go back to a life of slavery Mm -hmm. I mean not that he was freed here but he was at least away from Nuhuzrush and there's a scene between Kemet and Ahusaresh when they're on a boat. They set fire to their rooms to create confusion and to burn any documents that they would leave behind. And then they swim out to a boat. And there's a scene that's from Kemet's perspective where Ahusaresh is very angry. And the narration says, Kemet longed to leave him, but dared not. Which, of course, means that in this moment, Kemet wants to get far away from him because uh, he's red in the face. I just dropped my book. Um, but also, if you take that sentence out and you look at it by itself there's the truth that Kamet doesn't want to admit to himself mm-hmm. another line in the scene that took on new meaning for me in this reread was um Nehuzeresh says to Kamet here um I would like very much to strangle someone why don't you go away until I decide it isn't you so before Thicus Thieves was published I read that assuming like okay Nehuzeresh is just generally angry at the failure of all his plans, etc. So, like, that's why he wants to strangle someone. And he's going to take it out on Kemet because Kemet is there. Right. Which is, we know that's something he does do. Yeah, and he he can. Yeah. So, the new insight that Thickest Thieves gives us into the scene is we know from Thickest Thieves that uh, Kemet does not know how to swim. He can't swim! And almost drowned on the way out out there and begged Nehuzuish to leave him behind. But Nehuzerus, like, dragged him and made him swim out there. So this is 
probably why Nahusir she's angry specifically with Kamen in this scene. Mm-hmm. It's not only general anger. It's why don't you go away until I decide I don't want to strangle you because you just made the trip out here so much harder. Yeah, it's a a, a scene that you learn more about books later. Yeah, how does she keep doing that? She does it so well. All the books does it again. When they get back to the Atolian capital, uh, it's mentioned that the Atolian capital is on the Tustis, the Tustis River, which is a shallow river, which is just a new geographical detail that I thought was worth noting. It's not on the map. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that river's defense, the map is not super duper detailed. I'm sure it's a very respectable river, but it it's probably pretty small. Mm-hmm. So in this, we also get more Jen and Irene interaction and one paragraph that is still just killing us is (laughs) she, uh, at the end of a dance, goes to put her hand on his cheek and say goodnight or whatever, um, and he trembles under her hand and it says in uh, her narration, he was afraid of her. Some part of him would always be afraid of her. That fear was her weapon, and she would encourage it if she wanted to maintain her authority as queen. That's messed up, dude. <laughs> Oof. It's, it's one of those things where I think she's right, but also that's not the whole story. Yeah. Because they're not communicating right now. She won't look him in the eye. She won't talk to him. <laughs> um, and so she is drawing this conclusion from how he reacts to her physically when she touches him. And... Uh, a physical reaction of fear can sometimes be quite similar to another strong physical reaction, such as... From your crush. Love, perhaps. (laughs) Like, she touches him and he trembles. Maybe his heart is racing. Maybe he's flushed. And she assumes that it must be because he's afraid. And and that's, like, an easy reaction for her to understand and and react to. Yeah, to be fair, also, like, I think that's, you know, a valid assumption. Yeah, and and it's also... (laughs) definitely true yeah i'm both but i think she assumes or wants to assume um or be able to uh believe that he has a simple experience of her Mm -hmm. because that's easier for her to interact with yeah and that's part of why uh she denies this so strongly yeah but in reality he's having an incredibly complex experience of Mm -hmm. her and she's trying to simplify her own experience of this whole thing, too. And she's yeah. in denial about her own feelings at this point. And both of them are in that place in this chapter. Because he, when Eugenides is talking to Helen, he says, I admit I thought this would end like a fireside story and we would just live happily ever after. Mm-hmm. And so they both have to learn to lean into that complexity and embrace it. Yeah, and figure out a way out to the other side. Yeah, that's the only way that their relationship is going to move forward. Mm -hmm. This is a long official visit. Three weeks. Three entire weeks. Matus invites her aunt and her sister to soften the military edge. Which is a little bit more of a glimpse of Jen's family. Yes! I want to know! Yeah! Show us the Forbidden Sisters, please! (laughs) But they um, they have the officials who are trying to negotiate this treaty, and then the queens are expected to just 
um, attend social occasions and talk about the weather, and they're like re representing goodwill to mm. each other. But what's interesting is that it's the queens who end up resolving the issues that seemed impassable, mm -hmm. and they do it by working through the emotional issues that they're right. having. So there's that relationship between the political and the personal. Yeah, these political issues could not have been solved if the personal hadn't been taken care of. Yeah, and everybody assumes that the marriage exists to cement the treaty, but actually the treaty exists to cement the marriage. Mm -hmm. Edis gave both Jen and Atolia the option of we can do a treaty without a marriage, and both of them end up saying no. Yeah, and so it's only when free choice is reestablished for both parties. They sort of, they had a situation where um, he was um, in power and then it flipped and then she was in power and they mm -hmm. have to find a place of equilibrium. Where one and then the other of them did not have a choice. Yeah. But now that they both do, they have to choose the other one. Which leads us back to the myth of Hespira that we heard earlier in the story. Yes. Which was the whole moral. <laughs> Helen says, I don't mean to sound like Hespera's mother, but I wish you would come home, Jen. And so Jen is the one who's representing Hespera in this occasion, which I think is so cool. Yeah. Uh, he's the, um, the, the woman who marries the monster. Mm -hmm. And generally the trope of there's uh, somebody who's either literally or figuratively a monster mm -hmm. and someone needs to see through that and uh, love them anyway and heal them. That's so often a woman's job. We've all seen Beauty and the Beast, We've right? We've all seen it. <laughs> and a million other spin-offs and cultural derivatives. Mm -hmm. And we could argue that it's not truly subversive because... Irene is still very conventionally attractive, and usually in stories where the genders are reversed, there's an element of, like, looking past a uh, physical barrier, mm -hmm. and why in this situation do we so definitely not have that, but there's definitely an element of she is viewed as monstrous, right. as unapproachable. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's the person who has to soften that and make her more vulnerable by being vulnerable himself. And of course, this chapter ends with an enormous revelation that the gods have betrayed Eugenides. And with another smaller but still a bombshell piece of news that Atolia believes in the gods but does not worship them. Which is metal. <laughs> like, what an interesting relationship to have with religion. Mm-hmm. To believe in the gods, but not believe that they are on your side, or that uh, what they do is in your best interest, or right. that they are deserving of your devotion. Right. How defiant is that? Yeah. It's also implying, like, you know, you can do whatever you want to me for not worshipping you, and I don't care. Yeah. And so, I wanted to ask also, is the reason she doesn't worship them because she's angry at them on Jen's behalf that they betrayed him and made her cut his hand off and put him through all the suffering that he ended up going through. So that is, is it because she's angry with them because of that is why she doesn't? Yes, I think them. so. Because they specifically enabled mm -hmm. her to do that. 
And, um... And so she's angry on his behalf because she's in love with him. Yeah. All right. And I think because... I think this event was, like, independent of their relationship. I think that this event was the first thing in a long time to really rock her conscience. Um, and I think yeah. she did feel uh, that she had gone too far. Yeah, definitely. Um, because he didn't deserve it because he was so young. And usually the people who she does extreme violence on are um, actually traitors. And so I think that she feels like this made her cross a line. Yeah, it says maybe two or three chapters ago in her narration, she wondered when she had sunk so low that she'd begun torturing boys. Yeah. And Jen, who had gone from not really believing in the gods at all to having this intense faith Mm -hmm. um, that his god would always look after him, is now suddenly confronted with the idea that his god can hurt him. And it's so shocking to him. It says, if he felt anything, it was that he was falling through space as all thieves fall when their gods forsake them. And then he storms out of the room and the chapter ends really abruptly. And also, just to point, I think it's it's God singular. When their god the forsakes one them, god yeah. Thieves, you're right. Which just makes it even more, you know, poignant. Because he has this personal relationship. Right. Even though they're totally in cahoots. Like Hephaestia yeah. and Eugenides oh, yeah. and Moira. Yeah. That's a contingency right there. Yes. <laughs> I doubt we will ever get this information, but I would be really interested in seeing if, like, the mead gods that Kamet prays to and Inakur and... Wait. How do you say their names? Enakar and Imakuk. Is that the em- name? Emakuk and Inakur. Car. Okay. He's in he's in a car. I don't know. <laughs> the two mythical figures that Kamet tells Goss is about, you know who we're talking about. I would be very interested in knowing if gods from different countries like have relationships or know each other, or are they just totally separate because the god Eugenides is obviously keeping an eye on Costas, but so are the two mythical heroes and Yeah. It's interesting. I guess we're uh, three books too early for that question. <laughs> and it's interesting to think about uh, the agenda that the gods have, because it feels like these gods, uh, Hephaestia and Eugenides and all of their cohorts, they are the gods of the land, mm-hmm. and they are the gods of the original inhabitants before the invaders came. Mm-hmm. And so it feels like I mean, everything that they do has the ultimate goal of keeping the mead out. Yeah. And so they want to keep the land in the hands of the native people in order to, I mean, it like, ensure their own future worship. Because if the meads took over, then the mead gods would probably supersede them. Yeah. And then they would cease to exist, maybe. Ooh, I had not thought of that. That's it for chapter 20. Next episode, Love. Prophecy, Revelations, Showers of Broken Glass. The second book of the Queen's Thief series comes to an end. You know the drill. Send us your ideas, art, funny jokes at atolianarchives.tumblr.com. Be blessed in your endeavors. Thank you for listening. This has been an M.